who will remain through the tribulation will look on him whom uh, they have pierced. So he's coming with ten thousands of his holy ones in power and great glory. And Israel will look on him whom they have pierced. And then our Lord himself said that his coming would be like the flashing of lightning from east to west. But in all of church history, it is given to John alone to actually witness the unveiling of this in a vision. He's the only one among the prophets and the apostles to see this preview. And no doubt what he saw was rich and textured and majestic and full of color and glory. And yet, when he writes it down for us, he uses very simple words and just a handful of verses. And so our job this morning is to examine these words and to try and picture in our mind's eye what it will be like when our Lord returns. And as we do that, I want to exhort us, as the hymn writer does, and as I've entitled the message, Look ye saints, because the sight is glorious. Now in that sight, <clears throat> there are at least nine features that are described for us. Let's begin with verse 11, where John saw heaven open. And you may not have this cross-reference in your Bible. But if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, at the opening of the prophetic section of the book, John relates that he saw a door opened in heaven, and the Spirit of God called him up through that door so that he might receive the revelation that he's giving to us in this book. But now, it's as if a universe-wide curtain is pulled back, and he actually sees heaven itself opening. And here is the coming of the Lord now, as described in nine features. First of all, his posture. He comes seated, as is only right for a monarch. In other words, uh, he is sitting as befitting his office as a king. And his seat, of course, is on a white horse. That is the throne of his coming. Now, this really shouldn't strike us as strange because he did the same thing in his first coming. And it was predicted. In uh, Zechariah 9.9, the prophet foretold that he would come upon a donkey, a colt. The foal of a donkey, which of course he did. This was an animal which no one had ridden before, but his riding immediately tamed that colt. Well, so it is at his second coming, he will come riding. But this time it won't be upon a colt. It will be upon a white steed that is magnificent in its brightness. Undoubtedly, this will be an animal which no man or angel will have ever ridden before. In fact, I would think that it's probably created for this uh, occasion alone because that animal will carry on its back the Lord of glory. Secondly, his coming <coughs> will be in a display 
of his divine character. When he comes seated upon that white horse, he will be called in these terms, verse 11, faithful and true. And then it says that the judging he does and the war he rages will be righteous. Those three great perfections of deity are highlighted at his coming. First of all, he will be called faithful and true in that day. You remember uh, when he spoke to the Laodiceans in chapter 3, verse 14 of the same book, he referred to himself as the faithful and true witness. Well, that's certainly been in question for all of these centuries since then. The words that came out of his mouth when he was on the earth, the promises of his coming, the warnings that he issued have all been doubted and denied extensively. More than ever today, nearly 2,000 years after he made those promises at his first coming, people continue to malign the expectation of believers that the Son of God will return. But his testimonies are true, and he will be faithful. Numbers 23.19 tells us, Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? He most certainly will do what he says. And at his coming, you'll be there, I hope. And your heart will rejoice that he is faithful and he is true. And when he prosecutes his warfare, when he judges the living and the dead, it will all be in righteousness. It will all be according to God's perfect standards and expectations. In the United States, there's about 2,500 men and women on death row. Uh, they're waiting for their execution, many of them waiting for years. And one reason why the government is so slow in carrying out capital punishment is because there's always the possibility, you know, that the, uh, the judge, that the prosecution, well, they made a mistake. They might take an innocent life. And when it comes to wars here on earth, can anyone claim that there has been an entirely righteous war? that's ever been waged by men against men. Is it not true that every war has its share of injustice and the motives of those involved or the objects of their warfare or the treatment of their enemies and the terms of surrender? No, there's no war on earth that is entirely just. But when our Lord prosecutes His war at the great battle of Armageddon, there will not be a single wrong done to any individual. There will not be a single instance of the miscarriage of justice. There will be no war crimes committed. Every crushing blow will be entirely just as a display of his divine character. Thirdly, in verses 12 to 13, we are given a glimpse of his appearance at his coming. I think it's interesting that when you examine the Gospels, you won't find any description of our Lord at His first coming. Now, many of us have wished that at least there was a glimpse of that. And of course, artists and actors have done their best to try and portray 
the character of Jesus and show it on his countenance, show it in the features of his face. But no one really knows what his height was, whether his face was round or long. People assume uh, the color of his hair <coughs> and the color of his skin based on the fact that he's a Jew. But no one really knows whether he was light or dark. We just don't know. Well, when he comes for the second time, we do know a few things about his appearance in verse 12, where it says that his eyes will be exactly what John saw them as in the first chapter of this book. You remember back then that uh, when he heard a mighty voice behind him, he turned and he saw this figure uh, and that his hair was white as wool and he had feet like molten metal. And it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Well, so same eyes in verse 12. Eyes indicating that nothing can escape his gaze. He sees all. I think it's interesting that you can be one of the Lord's disciples and you can look into those eyes and find great comfort and love and joy. And yet there will not be a single enemy that can keep his gaze without fear and trembling. His head is undescribed except for what it will carry on that day. On his head are many diadems, and you have the translation of crowns, but the reason this term is important to understand is because there is a crown referred to in the New Testament as, <coughs> as the crown of an athlete's victory. Uh, this is the kind of crown which the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says that sporting athletes discipline themselves but only for a corruptible crown. There's also various crowns. The New Testament says that a Christian can receive from the Lord's hand. There's five of them. Those are the victor's crowns. But then there's another term that is translated as crown in our New Testament, and it refers to that which is the sign of royal office. And the Greek word is transliterated as diadem. Well, on his head are many diadems. Maybe you recall from chapter 12, verse 3, that the dragon, who's also Satan, is portrayed as having diadems on his cursed head. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says the beast wears diadems as well. At the coming of our Lord, it will be seen by all that he alone is worthy and he alone will wear these marks of a regal office. Many diadems are upon his head. Now, what do you suppose those diadems represent? What are the realms that are represented by the many crowns upon his head? When I was in London many years ago, I visited St. Paul's Cathedral. And there's a really cool feature up in the domes. Uh, in the nave over the choir area, uh, right behind the altar, uh, there's a series of domes. And one of them features paintings of all the beasts of the earth. And then a second dome features all the creatures of the sea. And then a third dome has paintings of all the birds of the air. But 
way back in that representation of all created things, seated on a throne is the oddest portrayal of the Son of God. And it's meant to portray, of course, the fact that all the creatures of earth and sea and sky pay their homage to the enthroned Lord. And so I would say that this is certainly part of his domain over which he rules. But when he comes at his second coming, it will not simply be <coughs> that his realm will consist of the universe of animals or even all the creatures on the earth, but it will be all created beings in existence, all of them in any universe of any time that will be made subject to him in that day. And when you look on his head, you will see the representation of all that he rules. Fourthly, there's an amazing statement at the end of verse 12, which says that when he comes, he will come with a written name. Where it's written, we're not told. But he has a name written, which no one knows except himself. It's absolutely ridiculous how the commentators discuss what name that might be. They get quite carried away with the speculation, but they should quit before they start because it says right there, no one knows it except himself. But I do want to point out something interesting back in chapter 3, verse 12. If you turn back there for a moment, this is one of the promises that the Lord gave to the church of Philadelphia. It says, he who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God when he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now think about that. In that day, we will have inscribed on us or perhaps on our clothing, kind of like a logo, the name of our God, and the name of the new Jerusalem. And then it says, and I will write on him my new name. Now, his new name may be this name in chapter 19 that no one knows except himself. But what's certainly true is that not only do we not know the written name, which only he knows, but we also don't know the new name that's going to be written on us. I mean, they might be two completely different names, or they might be one and the same name. But it means that there is coming a day when we will have inscribed on us, as it is on him, a name which no one knows at the present time. And just like our Lord's other names and titles, there's going to be some revelation that is given in that name. So it will be magnificent. And every one of us here who knows the Lord, I think, will be glad to receive it. It'll be a great satisfaction to be marked by it in that day. Well, in verse 13, his clothing is described. This is the fifth feature concerning the sight of his coming. He is clothed with a robe. That's the nature of his clothing. And Isaiah 63, 1 says it is majestic. 
But when you read the next words, you kind of shudder a bit when it says that his robe is dipped in blood. You ever read that description and asked yourself whose blood it is? Is it the blood which he shed for me? Well, that's not an impossibility because when John sees him back in chapter 5, you remember that the line of the tribe of Judah prevailed to open the scroll with the seals. But when John turns to see, he doesn't see a line. He sees a what? He sees a lamb standing as if it had just been slain. So it's not unfounded to think that this blood on his robe could be the very blood that he shed for his people. If that were the case, his enemies would be reminded by that very sight of what they had done for all of their waking lives. They had denied him who bought them with that blood. But this question about the bloodiness of the robe really was raised long before we thought about it. It was actually raised 700 years before his first coming in a prophetic vision from Isaiah 63. Verse 2 offers this question. Why is your apparel red? and your garments like one who treads in the winepress. And then the Messiah himself answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and my year of my redeemed has come. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So I think it should be clear that when he comes, his robe will be dipped in the blood of his enemies. The sixth feature we are introduced to is his designation or the fact that he will be called the Word of God in that day. Verse 13. Of the eight or nine writers in the New Testament it is given to John alone to use this title, which he also does in his gospel. <coughs> John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning that the designation of his eternal relationship to his Father is this. He is the Father's Word. Thirteen verses later in the same chapter, John again refers to him as the Word, and he says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and now that same title is not designating his relationship to the Father, but it's the designation of his incarnate relationship to his own. The Bible says that he came to his own. And now lastly, you can see it used here as the designation of his glorious appearing to the world. In all of those cases, whether it designates his relationship to the Father, John 1 1, or his incarnate relationship to his own, to whom he came, John 1 14, or his glorious appearing to the world, the revelation of that appearing to the world in Revelation 19, in all three cases, it means the same thing, which is this. Just as human language is the vehicle of our communication with one another. I mean, I'm standing here, I'm communicating human language to you. 
using words, just like we do that. So the Father himself uses the vehicle of speech to speak to us, except that it is speech in flesh. It is speech incarnate. In other words, it's not only what Jesus of Nazareth said, but it's all that Jesus of Nazareth did. And most of all, it is what Jesus of Nazareth was on the earth. He was the Father's revelation and communication of himself. That's why when one of the disciples turned to Jesus in the upper room and asked him, Lord, show us the Father, well, that will satisfy us. And what did Jesus say? Have I been with you so long and yet you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He said that because he is the Word. It was the revelation of the Father. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And if you go back and read the prophetic scriptures, you can see that there were many ways in which God spoke through those guys. Well, that same God says, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And then 11 chapters later, the writer returns to that thought and he exhorts us, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, Hebrews 12.25. Now for all of these centuries, men have been refusing him. They've been denying the miraculous nature of his works. They've been calling into question the deity and eternality of his person. They have denied that what he said is true, that he is the word, that he is the revelation of God the Father. So how just and right it is that at his second coming, he will return to be what he was at his first coming, the speech or the word of God. But this time, that communication from the Father will not be preceded by a forerunner like John the Baptist, who announced his first coming. On this occasion, he will not be preceded by a herald preparing people to repent. Instead, he will be accompanied, verse 14, by armies that draw men to the last battle of mankind. The seventh feature that is described here are his armies. These are the armies in heaven. I have a question for you. Who are they? (laughs) Who are they? They are plural, as if several companies are involved here. But exactly who are the armies of heaven? Well, we know one thing for sure. Matthew 25, 31 tells us that when he comes, it will be with all of his angels. You don't think he's going to leave any angels behind, do you? Not after they have waited all of world history for this event. The Bible says that when God created the world, uh, it says that the morning stars or the angels clapped their hands and sang of what they saw God create. Well, how disturbing it must have been when one of their mightiest fell and took with him a third of their number. Because ever since then, There's been a war in the heavens. The book of Daniel actually describes a little bit of that warfare. 
And it talks about uh, there being a battle between the prince of one country against the prince of another country in the heavenlies. Well, at his coming, Jesus himself said, Matthew 25, 31, that when the Son of Man comes, it will be with all of his holy angels. That means Michael's going to be there. It means Gabriel's going to be there. The cherubim who stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out, he's going to be there. Uh, it includes the seraphim with their six wings. All of the angels will be there, and 2 Thessalonians 1.7 calls them mighty. Think of that great event in Israel's history. Remember the Assyrian army was camped against Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah took that letter from the enemy up into the temple, and he laid it before the Lord. And he pled with God to help his people. And in answer to that, God sent a message from Isaiah that this army is not going to shoot a single arrow into that city. And instead, on that night, one, one of God's angels went out and decimated the Assyrian army until 186,000 men lay dead on the field. Well, when he comes, it won't be with one. It will be with all of his mighty angels. Now, we know that for certain, but here's what's a little bit uncertain. Will we be there? Will he come with all of his saints? Well, Jude 14 says that Enoch preached that when he came, he would come with ten thousands of his holy ones. Although holy ones is an expression that can also be used for the angelic company. They're not necessarily referring there to his people. But look back at chapter 17, verse 14. This verse points ahead uh, to the final war between the Lamb of God and the beast with his army. Verse 14 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Now, here's the part that gives me hope. Those who are with him are the called, chosen, and faithful. So here's a war. The Lamb is going to overcome. And there are people with Him. And this verse says, they're not the angels, but they are the called, and the chosen, and the faithful. So if we have been right in our differentiation between the second coming and the rapture, and right in our assumption that we will be caught up to be with the Lord before the tribulation, then we will certainly be among those who are the called, chosen, and faithful. We will be with the Lord when he leaves heaven to prosecute this war. We would be among the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and also riding on horses. You know how to ride a horse? I want to get some practice in. When the saints come, we're going to be on white horses. Now, I do want to point this out. It isn't because he needs us to fight. He doesn't even need any of his angels to do any battle. But if you look at verse 21, when it comes to that battle, it says, 
they're killed with a sword proceeding from the Lord's mouth. Now, you know, most battles today are fought by the troops and the generals kind of watch at a safe distance while they plan and they execute their strategy. And of course, that's necessary because the loss of a general would probably mean the loss of the battle. But in this war, the general will do all the fighting. And that means that the armies in heaven are simply going to watch it happen. However, do you think we're going to be able to see all of that without shouting, without the sounds of victory? Just imagine the Lord accompanied by millions of angels and who knows how many tens or hundreds of millions of his people. And he does all the fighting while we do all the shouting. There's no asthma in heaven. <laughs> it's kind of like the shouts you have when, uh, uh, when you're watching uh, the state of origin. You know, and the blues are winning. You can't help it. I mean, you're not playing the game. You're not on the field. But you're so excited at the win, you, you, you lose your voice. Because you're shouting so much. Well, I will certainly be shouting when the Lord wins this battle against his enemies and puts all the wrongs in history to right. And I'm pretty sure you'll be shouting as well. Well, in verse 15, note now his weapons. Here's the eighth feature described. Verse 15 mentions that sharp sword, and <clears throat> later in the verse, you'll see there's a rod of iron. And at the end of the verse, he treads the winepress, which a person, of course, does with their feet. First of all, the sword, that sword coming from his mouth is the symbol of authority over life and death. It's referred to that way in Romans 13, 4, when God says that civil authorities do not bear the sword in vain. That passage is referring to the fact that civil government has the right under God to carry out even capital punishment practice that is banned from what we consider to be progressive nations. In fact, 70% of Earth's nations have banned the practice of capital punishment. But regardless, uh, the sword is a symbol of authority over life and death. And so in that day, he will have a sharp sword. But what is that sword exactly? You'll notice that John sees the image of this sword going out of his mouth to strike the nations. And this is where I think it's important for us to go looking for other scriptures that may explain the image further because it seems highly unusual for a, a literal sword to be sticking out of the Lord's mouth. So let me give you three passages as cross-references to this image. Isaiah 49.2 is one of the uh, messianic passages, one of the servant songs. It records the Messiah saying that God has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In chapter 11 of that same book, verse 4, there's the prediction, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. God's going to slay the wicked. Listen to it again with the breath of his lips. And that's picked up, I think, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 in the statement that says he will consume the lawless one, the man of sin, the Antichrist. He will consume him with the breath of his mouth. 
I got to ask you a question. Since we've taken the approach of Revelation that interprets literally, if at all possible, so that you remember, if the plain sense makes common sense, we seek no other sense. If that is the rule of thumb in this book, is it necessary in this case to insist that out of his mouth comes a literal metallic sword? Well, these other verses. I think, pretty clearly indicate that his speech itself, his words or his breath, will be the sword that slays the wicked. In other words, he slays them with his speech, like a man slays men with a sword. <clears throat> One of the best passages in the Word of God that refers to his mighty voice uh, is Psalm 29. Psalm 29.3 says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Well, how majestic is it? How powerful is it? I, I need an illustration. Well, the Psalm's going to answer that question. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. Think of the massive cedars of Lebanon, just the height and the thickness of those things. Well, the voice of the Lord splits cedar trees like that. So just go home today and uh, get a toothpick and stick it into a little crack, maybe in your bench, and shout at it. And what that will demonstrate to you is the impotence of your voice. Your voice has no power to break a toothpick. So what is the nature of a voice that can break cedars? And then it says, verse 7, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. You think of the power to do that. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. This is the speech of God. This is the speech of the Son of God. But then verse 15 he will wield a rod of iron. Now, that was predicted in Psalm 2. We've gone through that psalm a number of times in this series because I think it really is the interpretive key that gives the whole overview of history from the Tower of Babel all the way to the second coming. And it says that the day will come when all of these proud nations, nations who have set themselves against God, and imagined a vain thing of breaking God's moral bonds. You think of what's happening lately in the U.S. with the reversal of Roe vs. Wade and all the leaders rising up against the injustice of taking away our freedom. You think of that. Casting away God's moral bonds. They did their worst at the crucifixion of the Messiah. Yet the Lord says to that person, You are my son. This day I have begotten you, referring to the resurrection. I mean, when, when men did their worst, God raised him from the dead. He says, this day I've done this. And what comes next? Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, the Gentiles, the heathen. I will give you them for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession, and you will break them with the rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. Think of taking a big iron rod 
and smashing clay pots. They don't stand a chance. They will shatter and fly everywhere. Well, that was the ancient prediction of Psalm 2. Now it's referenced here in verse 15, highlighting the fact that he will rule. He will finally break the nations with that rod of iron. He will break them and they will finally submit to him. And when he does so, it says he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In April 1734, Jonathan Edwards preached on this text. And specifically, the last line, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You know, Edwards had a way of extracting points from common texts like this, uh, from things that people never really thought about. And in this case, his proposition was that what we see here is the fierceness of the wrath of a being that is almighty. And that's the feature you tend to miss when you read this. Look at it again. And when you think of this, your mind just kind of imagines a wine press and someone treading on the grapes and the word fierce leaps off the page. It's the fierce wrath of God. The picture of someone just kind of stomping on grapes and juice spurting out everywhere. But what we typically miss is an emphasis on the Almighty. Well, that's what Edwards captured and warned his listeners about in 1734. It was the fact that if you refuse Christ, if you live as a rebel to his government, someday you will face the fierceness of the wrath of a being that is almighty. Now he elaborated that on great length. He said things like this, God will execute wrath like a God and therefore with a degree of power that far exceeds all the power of creatures. The power even a weak man can put another man through extreme suffering, but that is nothing in comparison. God will let his almighty arm alight upon men without any restraint or alleviation. A mighty man, when enraged, exerts himself. He lays out his strength to a great degree. So God, in punishing the damned, acts as an almighty being enraged. There is no caution used, lest his hand should be heavier upon them than they can bear or lest their misery should be altogether unsupportable. The whole design of God with respect to them is to show his wrath and to do so to such a degree that it will be a very great manifestation of his majesty and power. It will be the power of God in the sight, even of the saints and angels. The glory of his power will appear in his wrath upon men. Those are faithful words. But when he treads down with his heavy step and stamps upon the armies of the Antichrist, it will be the fierce wrath of a being that is almighty. And then lastly, verse 16, <coughs> the ninth feature is that he not only has a written name, which no one knows, verse 12, but he will also have a written name that is well known. It says that there is a name on his robe, 
and specifically on the part that covers his thigh. So think of a mounted rider with a robe, maybe a similar to the flowing robes that a Roman general might wear. And a portion of that is covering his thigh, and it's conspicuous because on that part of his robe there'll be this grand name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Maybe you remember that amazing vision in Daniel 7, where Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, And a fiery stream issues from his throne and thousands upon thousands attend him. And and there was one like the Son of Man who came. And Daniel 7.14 says that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice the diversity of that. Our culture blames Christians for being non-inclusive. But I want you to notice that right to the end of time, it is God's intention that there be a great diversity of peoples and nations and languages. So that through this diversity, not the uniformity of the human race, but through its diversity, he will receive glory from so many tongues, many peoples, diverse nations over which he reigns as their king. And there has to be Such diversity has to be a plurality of monarchs involved because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And then at last, Isaiah 9, 6-7 will be completely fulfilled. We quote this text at Christmas. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what's next? The government will be upon his shoulder. This will finally be fulfilled. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The government of God, ruled by the King of Kings, will be the only kingdom on earth And all of creation will know and accept what King Nebuchadnezzar learned when God turned him into a beast and made him eat grass like an ox. You remember after he recovered, he testified that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. Daniel 4.34 For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a wonderful day it will be, second coming, when all of this is displayed and the saints get to see it with their own eyes. Now the intention of God is that we prepare ourselves for this day. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that one of God's objectives is that when he comes with all of these features, seated on the throne of a great white horse, with the character of the faithful and true judge, who's going to act in righteousness to settle all of the accounts of the misdeeds of all of the centuries of human history. He's going to set the whole thing right 
And when he comes and his eyes are like a flame and on his head are these diadems and his clothing is dipped in the blood of his enemies and the armies of heaven follow him clothed in fine linen and out of his mouth comes these words that just slay his foes and he wields this rod of iron to break the nations and treads the winepress of the fierceness of a being who is indeed almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, when he comes like that, it is the objective of God, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, that on that day he is glorified by his saints and admired by those who believe in him. So all of this pageantry with the color and immensity and the throne and the sound and the spectacle, all of that is so in part we might admire him and he will be glorified by you in that day. We have a hymn in our hymn book that captures this scene, I think, so well when it says, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight returned victorious and every knee to him will bow. Crown him, Crown him, crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Let's sing that song together. You want to sing that together? I think Pastor Brian is going to lead us as we sing together, and then he's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper.